continue uh, this week in the means and methods of the mortification of sin. Let's, uh, is that still, is that audible in the back? Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and we can get started. Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, that you have uh, brought us again together this morning um, to be with our brothers and sisters and to fellowship and to be edified and taught by your word. But I pray that you would um, be gracious to us in this and that you would sanctify us by your word, allow us to see areas in our lives that we have not yet seen that are sinful. Father, show us places that we need to repent. And Lord, help us to um, seek to be honoring to you in the things that we do and say and learn today. Thank you again for the time we have. I pray it would be pleasing to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If anyone is lacking notes, I think Matt Scheffler still has some. If you need notes, raise your hand and he'll find you. And uh, start off. We'll have a little bit of a review from last week here in just a minute, but let's just go ahead and jump right on in to these first couple of scriptures. Let me have someone who'll turn to 1 Peter 2.11. Whoever would like to read, volunteer. Josh, okay, and then right after that, would someone get Galatians 5.24. Yes, sir. Okay, so go ahead, Josh, and then... Do Galatians right after that. Okay. Very good. Now these two verses have used some same words in common. Passions, desires. Sinful desires, yours may also have used the phrase fleshly lusts in First Peter. So now when we get down to it, all of our kind of introduction material last week, if we're going to look at what really is the mortification of sin, number one on your notes, mortification is a habitual weakening of the lust. An habitual weakening of the lust. Now in this context, it's important, I think, to know that the word lust, I think for maybe some of us, we immediately think that lust has to be some sort of sexual desire. But certainly in the context of what John Owen was writing, and I think also in the scriptures we just read, that lust has a much broader definition than just something that's sexual in nature. And there's different ways we could define lust. Um, Owen describes it like this. He says that lust is any depraved habit or an inclination pushing the heart towards evil. So the first thing to think about when we're going to mortify sin is that we have to weaken this lust and understand that since it's in our hearts, this indwelling sin, this is something that kind of needs to be attacked at the root. What the, yes, number one, it is a habitual weakening of the lust. Think about this, when you're in, you know, out in your yard, perhaps doing gardening, and you have to pull up weeds, is it going to be very effective to just pull up what's above the ground? Probably not. The weeds are going to come back. You have to get the root out, right? This is trying to get to the root of what 
the desires are in our heart, weakening that lust at its root. And then this begs the question, well, if this is within our hearts and dwelling sin, these lusts are there, what brings it out? What is it that brings these out and causes us to do things as a result of them? Well, the question is there on your notes. What brings it out? What brings these desires forth? It's actually temptation brings them forth. If you think about it like that, um, it is the desires in your heart that are there, sinful desires, all they kind of need is for a suitable temptation to come along. Whatever it is that you're perhaps prone to have a problem struggling with, when a temptation arises that lines up with that desire, that's where the sin is probably going to come forth. So it's temptation that brings these lusts out of our heart. So number one, a habitual weakening of the lust. And number two, what is mortification? It is a constant fight and contention with sin. A constant fight and contention with sin. Now, this is where we'll talk a little bit about what we learned last week. And that if we're going to be effective in fighting and contending with this sin, we need to understand that there are several just as the flesh had certain tactics we saw last week, such as being deceitful and trying to trick us, so we can also have several tactics in our fight against sin. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but let's, let's go through some of these the, the tactics for our fight against sin. Letter A would be just recognize the enemy. Recognize the enemy, which is the flesh indwelling sin. Pretty much what we talked about last week in greater detail. And then, after we recognize who the enemy is, we have to understand kind of how he works, which is, letter B, become acquainted with the ways that give this lust its success. Become acquainted with the ways that give lust success. And there are several that I want to go through because I think these are fairly practical for us to understand. So I have four little letters there, one, two, three, four Roman numerals, ways that give lust its success. First of all, sin aims at your weakness. And I think the emphasis that sin aims at your weakness is the emphasis on your, specific for each person. There are certain things that I'm prone to fall to temptation, but other people may not be. And the sin is going to aim at your particular weakness, whatever that might be. Number two is sin uses, this is an interesting phrase that came from Lungard's book, the tyranny of the urgent. Sin uses the tyranny of the urgent. And I find that this plays itself out in several different ways, but most of all, um, when I know that there's something that I'm supposed to be doing that God has called me to do, but my flesh tells me that you really don't have time to do that. You need to go do these other things instead. Because there's so many things that seem to be urgent that press on us day to day, things that we know we have to do just as a course of life, that those things can begin to push us to just take care of those things rather than neglect 
the private devotional things that God has called us to, using the tyranny of the urgent. Number three, Sun also uses what uh, another interesting phrase is the duty swap. Uses the duty swap. And that, and I've seen this myself, and I perhaps I'm not the only one, that, okay, so let's say on any given day, I didn't do my quiet time this morning, but this evening I'll make sure that I do family worship with the kids. I didn't do something I was supposed to do here, but I will do something else instead. Does that make sense? It could also be that um, if that builds on itself, if I begin to habitually not spend time in the Word myself, but make up for it by doing something more external like family worship, if that ever begins to stop or slow down and I don't do that, I might decide, well, I'll replace that with something that's even less frequent. Like, I don't know, it could be any number of things. But let's say, I'll, instead of doing family worship, I haven't done my quiet time, I'll make sure that I'm very clear in my message when I'm serving in children's church. And that it's replacing one thing that God has called us to do with something else. And then number four, another way that gives less of success is sin uses the big promise. Sin uses the big promise. And I find this also very practically that especially when things are very demanding around the house with the children, demanding at the, at the office, all the things that I'm supposed to be doing at work, I might find that um, I will neglect spiritual things for a certain time, my mind kind of tells me, okay, this week is just really crazy. I'll come back to spiritual things next week. The promise you're making to yourself, essentially. Instead of being devoted to the Lord this week, I'll come back after the deadline, after the kids are well, after such and such. Making a promise to yourself. And Lungard offers a pretty uh, biting rebuke of this attitude. This is basically nothing more than the cheer of the perennial loser. You know, we'll get him next year. That kind of attitude, which in reality is fairly pathetic, you know, when you really look at it. We'll get him next year. We'll get him next week, whatever the time frame might be. So when you look at the way that lust is given success, you, looking at our weaknesses, the tyranny of the urgent, the duty swap, the big promise, these are important for us to know because I think ideally what we want to be doing is getting to a place where right when our flesh begins to try to wave these things in our face, as Owen says, we can immediately say, oh, this is my flesh and I know what you're up to because this is what you normally do. Rather than being caught off guard by it, if we can understand this is the way that sin normally works in our hearts, then I think we'll be more likely to identify it right when it happens and say, this is the way you normally work and I'm not going to fall for it this time. Does that make sense? So, we talked about some of that last week. It's, it's important to understand the way our enemy works. And then letter C, another tactic for how we're really going to fight against sin. Letter C on your notes. This is where things become offensive, where we attack our lusts with spiritual weapons that are detrimental to it. Attack our lusts with spiritual weapons that are detrimental to it. First and foremost, 
be meditating on God with God. Letter one right there, meditating on God with God. And I think the reason this is important is because this is basically considering God's character, really who God is, his majesty, his glory, meditating on God with God, really who he is. And I find that there's in lots of cases, no better place to do that in the Word than in the Psalms. We see God's glory displayed in such clear terms in the Psalms, meditating on God, really understanding His character as a weapon that we have to attack our lusts. And then letter two would be meditating on the Word, in the Word, and this is a Play on words, in fact. Meditating on the word, in the word. And when we say meditating on the word, that's really Christ. Meditating on the logos, the living word. Meditating on Christ, in the word. Because I find that sometimes my Bible study, my meditating on in the scriptures can become, um, and maybe you've seen this too, it can become something that, I might be spending time in the Word, but the objective that I have is really just to learn some more facts, to accumulate more knowledge, or even sometimes, and I'll, I'll admit to this because the authors of, of um, Lungard mentioned this in his book, that sometimes we can even study Scripture just to be able to have some new insight to share with someone, which really is not, I don't think, what the Scripture is primarily for, just to learn something new that I can go tell someone else about. Certainly it's wonderful to be able to share truth in someone's life and encourage them. But if that's the only objective, that I want to have a cool new insight that I found in Scripture, that's really probably not the best approach for studying the Word. But when we're meditating on the Word, in the Word, I don't have a, something for you to write down here unless you want to write these down. I have two goals of what our meditation on the Word really should be. Goal number one is fellowshipping with its author, first and foremost. Fellowshipping with the author of the scripture. And then number two, the goal we ought to have when we're reading the word is to being changed by what we read. To be changed by what we read. Fellowshipping with its author and being changed by what we read. It's an important weapon to attack our lusts. And then number three at the bottom of your sheet. What is the third part of mortification? It would be a degree of success in the battle. A degree of success in the battle. We saw last week that we're never going to be totally victorious over sin in this life. But by God's grace, he certainly is able and more than willing to give us a degree of success as we fight against sin. And the also known as there at the very bottom, you can say a degree of success in the battle could be also known as, just one word, obedience. could also be known as obedience. And I want to talk about obedience for a bit. When we go to page two, this is... Something that I don't I don't want us to miss. You see the quote at the very top of your page. It says you cannot mortify specific lust that is troubling you unless you're seeking to obey the Lord from the heart in all areas. 
And I, I find that fairly eye-opening to consider. That even if I want to attack a certain thing that I see in my life, I know it's there, I know it's a problem. If there's other things that I'm not willing to deal with, that I'm not being obedient or submissive about, I'm not going to be successful over here in this other thing. So let's turn to Hebrews, and we'll look at a couple of verses that will help us, I think, as we think about how our obedience should look. Hebrews 2.1, and then Hebrews 5.13 and 14. Whoever has Hebrews 2.1, just go ahead and read it on out. And then whoever has 5, 13, and 14, go ahead and read that. Thank you. So what is the writer of the Hebrews, writer to the Hebrews saying here? First of all, from Hebrews 2, you could say that he's urging us to guard our mind. Number one, guard your mind. Saying that we must pay, pay much closer attention to what we've heard. To me, that has all to do with our mind. And he tells us why. He says, lest we drift away, drift away from it. So guarding our mind, and then from Hebrews 5, I would say that another way to better obey would be developing your conscience. Developing your conscience. I had never really seen what this verse was telling us in that regard because it says solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Meditation in the Word goes a long way in truly helping us discern good and evil. And it could be easy for us to think, well, I know the difference in good and evil. It's oftentimes black and white. But I think we also have to admit that there's also gray areas where it becomes much more difficult to discern what really is right and wrong. And right there in verse 14 it says, The solid food, which is clear teaching in the Word, allows us to really discern between the good and the evil, developing our conscience. And you notice that in both of those, whether it's guarding our mind or developing our conscience, really the, the prescription is the same. It has all to do with the scripture. Sometimes as I've been preparing these lessons, I begin to wonder, you know, is there not some sort of... Um, not some direction that the authors are going to give me that I've never heard before. How do I really fight against sin? But it constantly always seems to come back to the word first and foremost. And I think we know that. We're people of the book. Calvary is so clearly um, founded on the word. But this is the directions they're giving us to better obey, guard our mind, develop our conscience, and that comes through the word. By way of example, I want us to look at uh, an Old Testament text 
let's turn to Numbers. I had First Samuel and Numbers there because, frankly, up until the very end, I never could quite decide which story I wanted to use. So this will kind of be a choose-your-own-adventure. We'll go to Numbers. Numbers 20. And you all can look at First Samuel 15 on your own time. Because I think this is a very interesting uh, kind of case study in obedience. Let me just get two people. Um, who'd like to read from Numbers 20, verses 2 through 7? Go volunteer real quick. James? Okay, and then who'll read 8 through 13? Okay, Matt, go ahead, James. Thank you. This is probably a familiar story for most, most of us. But I think it's very instructive to look at what happens here because at first glance it might look like that Moses was just totally disobedient to what God asked him to do because God gave him very clear instructions. Let's see, let me find it. He told Moses in verse 8, first of all, take the rod Assemble the congregation, and then speak to the rock. Very three clear things that he told Moses to do. It would seem that that shouldn't have been that difficult for Moses to do, but Moses does something slightly different. He does take the rod, verse 9 says, and I think it's clear that they did assemble, verse 10, they gather the assembly, and Moses did actually speak, but who did he speak to? Did he speak to the rock? Who did he speak to? The people. He spoke to the people. And then he did something with the staff that God didn't tell him to do. He took the staff, and what did he do? He hit the rock twice. Water still came forth. Now, number one of the kind of obedience we look for is obey fully. Obey fully. Like I said, it could seem that Moses totally got it wrong because he clearly didn't do what God called him to do. But I think... If we were going to be somewhat sympathetic with Moses and kind of put ourselves in his place, I think we can probably see where Moses may have thought that he was being obedient because he did take the staff, 
he said something. He spoke. It wasn't to the rock, but he spoke to the people. And water still came forth. The result was still the same of what God said was going to happen. I think Moses might have thought that he was doing what God had asked him to do, even though it's clear that he wasn't being fully obedient. Number two, a way we should obey is obey by faith. Obey by faith. What makes this story even more uh, interesting is that something very similar to this had happened some years before in the wilderness. People complained. They didn't have anything to drink. They complained to Moses. Moses went to the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, in this case, take the rod, take the, the rod. And he told him that first time to actually strike the rock. And water came out. And I think you have to wonder that based on what Moses had done previously on that other occasion, he may have thought perhaps, you know, we don't want to be, we don't want to have too much conjecture, but I think it could be fair to guess that maybe Moses, based on what he had done in the past, and finding himself in a very similar situation. The people are complaining, they're thirsty, they're grumbling. God has given me instructions, and they're different from what he instructed me to do last time. I wonder if Moses was really having a faith problem and really believing that God was still going to accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish, but this time by a different means. So obey. Could be, Doug. It could be. So obey by faith. I don't think that Moses was quite believing that just speaking to the rock would be enough in this case. I think he felt like he had to do more than just speak to the rock. That's why he struck it with his staff. Number three, another kind of obedience we should look for would be obey from the heart. I'll go ahead and give you number four. Three was obey from the heart. And number four, obey God's way. Now, it's interesting in that as, I think, wrong-headed as the Israelites were being, and they're grumbling about not having any water. Um, in fact, they were actually saying things like, why have you even brought us to this wilderness? Why have you made us come up from Egypt? Almost saying like it would have been better if we were still in captivity, because then we had water to drink. It's a pretty terrible attitude, I think, for them to have at that moment. And so Moses and Aaron, they go and they plead before the Lord, and God tells them what to do. But God doesn't tell them to rebuke the people for what they had said. He, he would have been, I think, you know, perfectly justified to tell Moses to rebuke the people for this attitude. But God didn't say that. He simply said, go and speak to the rock. And if you look at the way that Moses addressed the people in verse 10, he said, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? More than anything, I think that Moses was trying to perhaps vent some of his anger towards these people that were grumbling. And I think that he was trying to make it more about what he and Aaron were doing rather than what God was about to do. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then he does something, you know, his staff hits it twice on the rock. So obeying from the heart and obeying God's way this was obviously not the way that God intended to provide water for the Israelites in this case. I think that if Moses would have just done what God had asked him to do and just gone and spoken to the rock, as strange as that may have seemed, we don't often speak to rocks. 
he had done that, and then God provided the water that way, that, I think, could have been, in some ways, a more amazing display of God's providence than by the people seeing Moses strike the rock, which might make them think that it's because he hit the rock hard enough. That's what caused the water to come out. And then number five, another kind of obedience we look for, obey God for God's goals. Obey God for God's goals. Now, the scripture makes it pretty clear what God's goal was in this case. Verse 12 and 13, God talks about being treated as holy. Verse 13, because of this, he says that he proved himself holy among them. I think that that was God's goal in any case, to prove that he was holy. I think not that God's purpose is ever thwarted, but I think that the way that Moses took this situation and made it about something else, I think that he possibly may have diluted some of what the Israelites really should have understood. Now, obeying fully and by faith and from the heart and obeying God's way and obeying God for God's goals, that makes it look fairly difficult to be obedient, doesn't it? When you really stack all those up, it makes it look very difficult. At least to me. Maybe it looks easy to you all, but it looks difficult to me. Now, let me also just pause and see if any of you can think of an example of something that God causes us to do, but we're often tempted to not obey all the way. Can you think of circumstances, things that God has called us to do, and yet we don't always want to be fully obedient? Discipline our children. That's right, Amy. That's the example I was going to give. When God causes us, calls us to discipline our children, we know that there's very clear direction in Scripture of the way we should do that. But I find myself in that same place thinking, you know, I don't have time to go through this whole um, process of discipline. Let me just get this over and make sure that I maybe strike him. Think about Moses. But... Um, any other examples? When What does God call us to do that we're tempted to not fully obey? Okay. That's true. Seeking forgiveness from others. That's right, Mary. That's, that's a very good example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Okay. Submission to your husband. I could say right back to everyone, loving your wife as Christ loved the church. My goodness. That's something that we're very clearly called to do, and yet I think that it's very often the case that we fall short in that. Now, It's very easy to look at Moses and think, you know, what a numbskull that God called him to do something very clearly, and yet he did something else. But I think that when we think about our own lives, whether it's forgiving others or tithing or disciplining our children or submitting to 
husbands or loving our wives, I think it's very easy to see that the things that God has called us to do we're just as prone as Moses was to not obey in the way that we should. Let me share a quote about obedience. This is not in your notes. This is from Wayne Grudem. He says, God's requirement of all people, that's me and everyone in the room, everyone in the world, God's requirement of all people is perfect sinlessness even when under the most intense pressure to sin. God's requirement of all people is perfect sinlessness, even when under the most intense pressure to sin. That sounds like a very tall order, doesn't it? One could begin to wonder, well, how in the world do I do that? Well, the fact is, well, we're definitely called do that in a very real sense, we don't do that. There is no way that we can be fully obedient. Grudem continued and said, that requirement of perfect sinlessness was fulfilled in Christ as an example and as an encouragement to us. Now this is not, this is not intended to make us feel better about not obeying the way we should but it should give us encouragement. And that's what we have here at the bottom of page two. I want us to be encouraged to obedience, to not feel like that we can never get there, because we really can't entirely. But there's lots of scriptures that I think will give us encouragement to be able to do a much better job of it. Um, I'll go to 1 Corinthians. If someone else will go to Hebrews and be ready when we get there. Hebrews 10.31 in just a moment. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So what is this telling us? If we want to consider some things for encouragement, First of all, I think we should consider the sovereignty of God. Number one, consider the sovereignty of God. Now, it would be one thing to consider the sovereignty of God in the way that he is holy and almighty and all-powerful. While that might be encouraging in one way, it could also seem very frightening when you really think about God's sovereignty. But in this case, from 1 Corinthians, I think that God's sovereignty is really telling us, like it says, God is faithful and that every every temptation, every trial that we face is measured for us. It's not something that God just throws out at us. It's something that's measured specifically for us. And he says that it's not going to happen beyond what we're able will provide the way of escape also so we can endure it. I think when we consider God's sovereignty in this way, I think that can be an encouragement for our obedience. Who has Hebrews 10.31? Doug, go right ahead. Okay, and that's the other side of it, though. 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I think that can also be encouraging in a way to consider what the real penalty for sin is. I think that can also be encouraged is to consider the punishment of sin. Consider the punishment of sin. going. I'm not going to probably get to everything this week that I plan to, but I still have one more week to go. So, Consider the punishment of sin number two, and number three, I've turned to Psalm 103. And then if someone else would be kind to go to 2 Corinthians for, for just a moment. I'll read from Psalm 103, 8 through 14. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful. We are dust. What do we consider here that will encourage us? We consider, I think, the love and the kindness of God. Consider the love and the kindness of God. Talks about just as a father has compassion on his children. I don't think I really ever understood this aspect of God's character until I became a father. You fathers may identify with this. You really, pro- you really might not fully understand the way that God cares for us until you have perhaps children of your own. Because it's amazing to me that no matter what my children do, whether it's something, I don't need to give any examples, no matter what they do, you know, my love for them never stops. And there's actually a moment Several months ago, I forget what happened, but our five-year-old daughter, Lucy, asked us um, that something she had done. She said, would you still love me? And it was like a cut to the heart to think that she may have actually thought that I didn't love her because of what she had done. The fact is, there's nothing that could ever happen to keep me from loving my children, and so it is with the Lord. Just as a father has compassion on his children, he has compassion on us. I think that can be encouraging in the way we should obey. Would someone turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Go ahead and read those verses when you're there, whoever that is. Thank you. So what is the encouragement here? I think the encouragement here 
is that we should consider the blood and the mediation of Jesus Christ. Consider the blood and the mediation of Jesus Christ. It says that he died for all, that he would that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, that he died and rose on their behalf. And it's only because of him, in verse 21, that we're able to be righteous. That should be a great encouragement, I think, when we're considering how we're supposed to obey, that Christ has done something amazing for us to enable us to obey. And then finally, number five, we'll go to Galatians. I have the one of the verses wrong there. It should be Galatians 5, 22 through 23. This is the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So the final thing that would cons- uh, encourage us to obey would be if we should consider the Holy Spirit. Consider the Holy Spirit, which is our privilege as believers. So, if these things are going to encourage us to obey, and if we go to page 3, there's a couple of more things I think that we could do to prepare to truly get to the work of mortifying sin. I have two directions here on the top of page page three. Direction number one would be humility. Direction number one is humility there. And for the sake of time, I'll just read one of these verses. I'll go to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 32-4 says this, He says, surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? This is a man, I think, that understood his place in the grand scheme of things. Saying that he's more stupid than any man, I don't think that our pride would often allow us to say that about ourselves, but it perhaps could be good for us. So letter A, when it comes to humbling ourselves, you should humble yourself in our position. Humble ourself in our position. That is who we are as people. And then I'll also go to Romans writing, humble yourself in your position. Romans 11. Other very familiar passage. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory Forever. So after we humble ourselves and consider our position, letter B is we should exalt God and his position over us. 
should exalt God and His position over us. And I think the reason this is so important as we're going to approach truly fighting our sin is I think we have to admit two things about ourselves. Well, two things that come to the way that we know God. Because of who we are as people, our position, who God is, we have to admit oftentimes we really know very little about God. I think there's two reasons for that. We know very little. First of all, it's because it's God we're talking about. But second of all, we, the things that we know, we only know by faith. Now, it can be easy enough to read the Scripture and study the Scripture and learn lots of facts about God. Isn't that right? We can know theology. We can know about God's character. We can know lots of things about Him. But when it comes down to it, truly knowing Him is really a different thing, and that is only something that comes by faith. Now, and I think the reason that oftentimes we have such a hard time mortifying our sin is because sometimes our faith is so small. Since our faith is small, we're going to have a very difficult time truly knowing the Lord and understanding who He is. It's like this cycle that compounds the difficulty we have in mortifying our sin. Let me read a quote. If I could. Talks about this. When we consider who God is, we have to admit that we really do not fully understand these things. All we can do is believe and admire, or you could use the word worship. We profess, as we were taught, that God is infinite, omnipotent, eternal, and we know the discussions about his omnipresence, immensity, infinity, and eternity. We have we have words and notions about these things, but as the things themselves, what do we really know? How do we comprehend them? Can the mind of a man do any more than be swallowed up in an infinite abyss and give itself up to what it cannot conceive or express? Owen says that is not our understanding brutish in the contemplation of such things. This is important, as I've said, and that to truly, I think, get to the heart of the sin and the flesh that's within us. We have to humble ourselves and understand who we are in our position and exalt God for who he is over us. Because what would our flesh have us do instead? Our flesh would have us, instead of these things, our flesh would have us think that we're just fine, just like we are, and that, in fact, we can go our own way arrogantly without him. And we have to admit that if we're truly going to mortify sin, we are, in fact, very needy of God's grace, and that we can't do it by ourselves. So humility is direction number one. And then this might be the last thing we look at today is direction number two, which is God's peace. God's peace. I'll go to Isaiah.
Isaiah 57. Where we read, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I think that relates to what we just said about those that are truly humble, contrite in spirit. It's the one that God dwells with. Verse 16, For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. He went to turning away, and in his way of his heart, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of his lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will hear him. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And when we think about God's peace in this context, when it comes to fighting our sin, I think that the peace that we're really looking at here is since the flesh and the spirit are constantly opposing each other, as we saw last week, peace that we're seeking is something that only God can do. It's only God that can really quiet that battle within us. If the flesh and spirit are constantly opposing one another, it's only God that can bring peace to that within us. But letter A here, the first thing we should understand about this peace is that God gives this peace to whom he pleases. God gives this peace to whom he pleases. Now, it could be that the way that God gives peace to someone's heart is very different than the way he gives it to someone else. And we have to understand that he's not going to grant peace to my heart the same that he would grant to someone else's, which could also mean that my struggle against sin could in some way seem um, more difficult than maybe I see it in someone else's life. We have to believe that that's not unfair. It's that God gives peace to whom he pleases. And letter B, we have to understand how this peace actually comes to us. Understand how this peace comes to us. And this might come as a great shock to you with these two bullet points of how the peace comes to us. I don't want to minimize it at all, but how does it come to us? How do you think it might come? You want to venture a guess? You're all holding one in your lap. The Word. The Word. It comes through the Word. The first bullet. And then John 14, 27, we know the peace comes to us through Jesus. It comes to us through Jesus. And really, by no other way, I don't think. Jesus speaking to his disciples says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, 
but I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So with the battle that's going on in our hearts, and we're seeking peace, it's only going to come from two places. It's going to come from the Word. It's going to come through Christ. Now, most importantly, initially, peace comes to our hearts when we're saved, right? When peace is made between God and man because of what he's done on the cross. And there's an important thing to understand here is that in our battle against sin, and we may have touched on this last week, that there is constantly, constantly failure. and We're not seeing any result at all. It could be that peace has not been originally made between us and God. That is, we have to make sure that we really are one of his children. Once we are, on an ongoing basis in the process of sanctification, his peace comes to us in the word and in our Savior Jesus. I think I need to stop there. We have next week, we're going to consider the work of mortification, some very clear directions to give that we didn't have time for today. And then, since I was kind of given a bonus week, week three, um, I was thankfully given another resource. Dan gave me a book called Tempted and Tried. It has all to do with Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. I'm going to use that as kind of a way to flesh out some of these things, to look at the way that Jesus was tempted, look at the way that he responded to his sin, because if ever there was someone who truly did mortify sin, it was Christ. He mortified every sin that ever came along. He did it perfectly. I think we'll use that as an example for us next week. Let's see. Jeff, Tom, would you mind to pray for us as we go?